0: Hello there. You're listening to The Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to be talking about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this
1: upcoming weekend. We'll also be doing a director's analysis on Damien Chazelle looking at each of his major films including Whiplash, La La Land, and First Man. And here to
0: join us to do that is our good friend and local filmmaker, Benjamin Geller. Ben, how are you?
2: Good. Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. You're a big fan of Damien Chazelle and you love all his work and whatnot.
2: Absolutely. He's my favorite director.
1: Well, there we go. All righty. We will begin shortly. I hate you. <laughs> Hey, we're gonna start off with some news, some breaking news. Harvey Weinstein was convicted of two accounts. We got criminal sex act in the first degree and rape in the third degree. But Dylan, were that those weren't all of the charges that he had against him, right?
0: No, he was acquitted of the more serious charge, which is predatory sexual
1: assault, which is very unfortunate. Right. Um, because more than since October 2017. More than 80 women have come forward with their stories of sexual abuse at his hands. And unfortunately, the case really only came down to two women who their cases were brought forward and he was charged criminally for them. But of course, the damage that he caused was far more than just those two women. Now, this is the charges he's been charged with that
0: will lead to a minimum jail time of five years and a maximum jail time of 25 years, which... We're pushing for And this is also, this is just the case that's in New York. This is tried in New York. And then he's also got a, a case
1: waiting for him in L.A. So there could be more charges coming his way. That is true. And he's also, there's been a lot of stuff in the news recently about he's having chest pains and heart palpitations. They released a little snippet of him coming into the courtroom the other day when they uh, when the jury finally had finished deliberation. And they were asking him if his back was okay because apparently that's been a big thing going on with them. Mm. Um, so that's just another angle to this case that has developed recently. So, I mean, it's very crazy and interesting to look at. But at least we've gotten some amount of justice for what that man had done. Absolutely. And if he does truly have heart conditions and, I mean, minimum jail time of five years, maximum of 25 years. Exactly. Which is why yeah. the predatory uh, sexual assault if that had also if he had been um, convicted of that, he would have gone to jail, I think, for essentially the rest of his life. Because the minimum amount of years would have gone up and then Well with heart problems and this jail time, it could be the rest of his life. That is true. Which would mean guaranteed he probably he wouldn't be hurting any more women, which is You're hoping. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So let's hope that that continues, him getting in jail yes, and put away. Mm-hmm. But in different news, another kind of breaking news, uh, Mission Impossible 7 has had to halt their production in Venice, Italy because of coronavirus concerns. So that's another major issue that is going on in the world but also has direct impacts on the film business. Uh, and So I thought that was an interesting thing to bring up as well. Yeah. I'm excited for Mission Impossible 7. Yeah, it's coming out July 2021. Yeah. So it's coming out. I mean, Fallout's fantastic, so. It was, yeah. And wasn't, because they're making two more, Mm -hmm. because that's seven. and I think they're also filming eight back-to-back. They're doing one of those sort of things. That's cool. So yeah, so we got them coming. Yay. All right, and
0: Jurassic World 3 is going to be titled Dominion, and it will be directed by...
1: Colin Trevorrow once again. Which so if you're excited for that, which are any of you here excited for? No. no, nope, nope. Moderately. So the
0: second one, Fallen Kingdom, that was directed by J.A. Bayona, right? Yes. Not a clue. I think it was. And then the first one was Colin Trevoro. Correct. Definitely. So he's coming back,
1: but I also don't think he's very good.
0: <laughs> so we're just going to see how that turns out.
1: Yeah, hopefully, I mean, there was a low bar set by Jurassic World 2, so... Yeah. hopefully he will bring I think he can do better than that.
0: the low bar that was set. So good
1: luck. Call yeah. Me. Uh and we have Eli Roth who was the director of House with the Clock in Its Walls and also The Green Inferno. He is slated to direct the recently announced Borderlands movie which can tie into our box office breakdown for this past week because video game movies especially with Sonic the Hedgehog, they seem to be getting more traction, or at least with Detective Pikachu last year and then Sonic this year, they're more viable at the box office, so mm. perhaps that motivated this decision to have Borderlands movie, and we might yeah. see some more. I know we've talked about before. Uncharted. The Uncharted. works, yeah. yeah.
2: And it will be for the rest of our lives. Yeah.
1: yeah. That is true. They've been working on that for so, like, a decade. Yeah. It probably won't
0: be good. So long, that Mark. Wahlberg... I also don't have hopes for Borderlands. I played the games. It's it's just too crazy to be a movie concept. If you if, ask me,
2: if Borderlands tries to take itself seriously at all, it will fail as a movie.
1: Yes, I agree. And there you go, and that leads us into talking about Sonic the Hedgehog, which uh, claimed the first spot yet again. It beat out Call of the Wild, so it grows twenty six million this past weekend it's now at 106 million total domestic um and remember that's against a 95 million budget yep and then worldwide it's got 203 million and that doesn't count for china as well because again between the coronavirus that just china is not a part of the box office anymore at this time mm.
0: well i mean if it's got long legs and it lasts out there a little longer and it gets enough of a following and enough of a you know Return from the mm-hmm. box office. I could see a Sonic 2 happening.
1: Yeah, it seems. Make green light that. And uh, Ben, who has seen it, did they set up a sequel?
2: They absolutely set up a sequel. You can tell that they are very much hoping for one.
1: Are All you right. hoping for one?
2: Uh, That's a, that's a good question. I, I suppose it wouldn't be the worst thing. It's not the worst movie I've ever seen. I can't exactly say I'm excited for a sequel, but it should be interesting.
1: Okay, there you go. And and the second spot was the Call of the Wild, the Harrison Ford movie with the dog. Um, and that that got twenty four million. So it did overperform a little bit, but of course, when you look at the budget for this thing, hundred and nine million.
2: It's impressive that
1: they spent that much money on making a CGI dog and still couldn't make it look real. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's not that's very not good. impressive. I mean, we've been talking about, you know, budgets and the cost to to get back into break even, and mm-hmm. then to make a profit, there's no way this film is going to do that. No, not at all. Which is tragic. I mean, that sucks.
0: Oh, well. Now, it's unfortunate that Call of the Wild did so bad, but one less hair, one, like, one worse. Let me start over. <laughs>
1: <laughs> cut that, cut that out.
0: Maybe I will. I probably won't cut it out. But no, you should. You should. No, now I this
2: is too. I long. Mean, yeah, at this point, it's gone on for too long. Do you now, think it's, it's
0: going, going on out. for too long, or is it going on for so long that when we loop it back, it'll start? It'll it'll be yeah, funny we'll, enough to keep it going. We'll just leave this in. But directed by Damien Chazelle, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. One less Harrison Ford dog movie is all the better.
1: <laughs> it's just too many dog movies, CGI dog movies. They're bad. That is true. And talking about. Movies that aren't gonna get their break even point. Birds of Prey Mm. only got 7 million this past weekend. That was a 59% drop from the previous weekend. And that was the biggest drop in the top 10, which is ludicrous. Ludicrous. So it only got 72 million total right now domestically. And again, that's like an $85 million budget. Mm. So they still haven't even reached the break point, the break even point of, oh, this is just the budget factor in the advertising costs. They're not They're not going to hit you. Yeah. And if you want to listen to us go in depth about Birds of Prey, you can listen
0: to the show we recorded last week that is on Spotify, just before this show, on Birds of Prey and Female Representation with Lillian Snyder. Good plug. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Brahms or Brahms the Boy 2? We don't know if it's Brahms or Brams, And we don't even know. There's no prequel no cool to cool. it. There's
1: no original movie. Why is it called the 2? Who knows? 5.9 million. Yeah, no That's one thought. It. No one cool. understood it either. And Bad Boys for Life, people did understand that one. They went to go see it. 5.8 million. It is currently the highest grossing movie of 2020 with 391 million worldwide. Good for Will Smith. Good for Will Smith.
0: And to go over the last of the top 10, just real quick, 1917 with 4.4 4
1: million. Fantasy Island with 4. Parasite with 3 million. Woo! Jumanji with 3 million. It's its 11th week in the top 10. And The Photograph with 2.8. And... A quick prediction for next week: We have the Invisible Man coming out, that remake of the classic Hollywood movie, uh, bad. Universal no. Horror. We're pinning it around thirty million. Yeah, but we don't know because you know box office prediction been crazy this year. That is real true. crazy. So if you're a betting guy, maybe don't. Yeah, don't bet because <laughs> we have no clue. Sonic the Hedgehog will probably take home another seventeen million. For it to be a good hold, so but I think it'll take it, and we'll see which either Birds of Prayer or Call of the Wild, which one will tumble even further?
2: Probably both. I'm going to guess Call of the Wild probably isn't going to stay in the top.
1: Yeah. Ben!
2: <laughs> Hi!
1: It's so
0: great to have you here. Now that we've gotten the technical aspects of the show out of the way, we can talk to you about who you are as a person. Now I'm you, ben. Yes. Now, you recently directed a short film, co-directed with our friend Corey, and we well, are our friend, too. And <laughs> you also co-wrote it with Corey and uh, Cecilia Hubbard. Now... What's it like directing your own short film? Is it the best experience in the world?
2: Uh, It was incredible. This was the first major short film that I've directed uh, in college, and we were one of the 16 films shown in Campus Movie Fest at UCF out of 115 submissions, and we won the Audience Choice Award. So it blew past my expectations, could not be happier with the result, Uh, and again, of course, thanks to my co-director, Corey Marr, and my director of photography, and head writer, uh,
0: Cecilia Hubbard. And now Pizza Boy, the short film, we both worked on it. Yes. We both had a lot of fun on set. It came out really well. But what a lot of people don't know is this was submitted into Campus Movie Fest, which means you had only one week to do production and post-production on this film.
2: One week to film and edit. We had one shoot day, and then uh, Corey nonstop edited for basically the entire time. That's crazy. We got it done about 15 minutes before the (laughs) submission deadline. That's amazing. Uh, But before that, it was weeks and weeks of pre-production and casting and writing and assembling the crew and everything. and. It, I think it came out really well, and you could be expecting a lot more from uh, from Corey and I coming soon. And we can watch that on YouTube now, right? You absolutely can. You could look on the uh, Campus Movie Fest YouTube channel for Pizza Boy, or you could look up uh, Corey Mars YouTube channel for a slightly revised version with better credits and a couple audio fixes. Mm-hmm.
1: Everybody, go watch Pizza Boy! Woo! Mm-hmm. And once again, congratulations, Ben, for that amazing achievement. Congratulations! <laughs> thank you, and thank you both for working on it. Oh, oh and thanks for having us. Oh, so amazing. <laughs>
0: Now we're going to talk about our main topic for today, which is your favorite director, Ben, Damien Chazelle.
1: The love of your life. Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Damien Chazelle Chazelle. is my favorite director. Could not be happier to talk about him.
0: Wonderful. Now, a little bit of background on Damien Chazelle. Um, He was born in Rhode Island. His father is a computer science professor at Princeton, and his mother is a medieval history professor at the College of New Jersey, and he attended Harvard, where he graduated in 2007. So he's from a very intelligent background. He himself is very intelligent,
1: of course. So Of course, yeah. I ben, think that how, intelligence. Ben, how much of that did you already know and have inscribed into your heart? All of it, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Naturally, of course. It's like you've heard it all before.
2: Yeah, almost.
1: Wow,
0: incredible. Um, He also tried and failed at being a jazz drummer in high school, and he had an intense music teacher that went on to be the basis for the character Terrence Fletcher in his movie Whiplash, which we're going to be talking about in a second. Which So that's a very personal story for him, which you can feel when you're watching it. It is... The most personal is the most creative. Mm-hmm. And Bong Joon-ho, Martin Scorsese.
2: We should be so glad that he failed as a jazz drummer. Otherwise, he might not be making movies now.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for failing, Damien <laughs> Otherwise, he'd just be a jazz drummer. See, there you go. Nobody Failure... would
2: ever heard of him. Yeah.
1: It's just another path to success.
2: Yeah, I'm pretty sure that is the message of Whiplash, is that if you become a jazz drummer, no one will remember you.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: Whiplash was produced by Bloomhouse and some other producing companies, and they told Damien Chazelle, with J.K. Simmons attached to the project, to make it a short film first. So they made a short film, and it was the scene, if you've seen Whiplash, it's where they have their first professional interaction, like, as part of the big band, and Fletcher throw. You see the first time Fletcher is, like, a mean person, and he throws the chair at Andrew's head. So it's that scene, and that was submitted to Sundance, and it was shown at Sundance, and it got all kinds of financial, like contributions to make the movie, and he was able to make it into a feature-length film, which went on to be nominated for several Academy Awards and won three. Not enough. Okay. I think it was enough. But it was really, really well done, and it's my favorite Damien Chazelle film out of the three features that I've seen. I haven't seen Guy and Madeline on a park bench, but has anyone? (laughs) Even I haven't. Even you haven't. That's the point. But of the three that everybody's seen when you're talking about Damien Chazelle, Whiplash is my favorite. Now when we're talking about whiplash 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 I like it because I can <laughs> I can connect to it because I'm a drummer myself so I can like see I just it makes it all the more better for me as a viewer is that is like I can connect on the drummer level that I know exactly how difficult what he's doing is like it looks very difficult the way they shoot it and whatnot That's but I amazing. know personally that it's incredibly difficult and I can't even I can't do it so and then like the abuse that he received from Terrence Fletcher as a teacher, just that feeling of like your teacher disapproving of you and like you're trying your best and this something that's so incredibly difficult. You just feel bad for him. He's just really getting abused here. Like Spencer always says, I kinda like seeing my characters get abused. <laughs> and yeah. he's right. It's it's very entertaining to watch.
2: Yeah, I've been uh I've been doing music for twelve years. Uh, and I've had my fair share of different directors, and uh, it's as sad to say as it is the ones who who yell at us and who focus on the small parts do tend to get a better result than the ones who are nice and and uh, gentle. And like, it was interesting to see that take shape in Whiplash, and it, it's such an incredible film.
0: But is it really tough love if it's all tough no?
2: Okay, I never had someone quite as severe as yeah, Terrence thank Fletcher. God, thank
0: God no one's throwing a chair at you for hitting yeah. the wrong note in the bass mm-hmm. in the back.
2: Uh fun fact about the the chair throwing scene, this is just something I find interesting in Damien Chazelle movies, is that he gives a different origin story for how Charlie Parker got the name of Bird in Whiplash than in La La Land. In Whiplash, he says it was because Joe Jones threw a cymbal at his head and he dodged out of the way so quickly that they called him Bird. But in La La Land, they say he got the name Bird because he loved fried chicken so much, which is why Sebastian wanted to open up chicken on a
0: stick. Very fascinating. Yeah.
1: I like that a lot. It's good trivia. Ryan, what Thank did you, you think of Whiplash? I think Whiplash is incredible. Thank you. I watched it um, in like, I don't know, a year after it came out. I think I caught it. It was on some sort of service that I had. I, don't, I, I think, think it was on was Netflix. Netflix, yeah. I think it was on Netflix for a little bit. And so I just, I watched it and... I don't think it's on Netflix anymore, though. Tragic. It's entirely engrossing, the entire film. Like, we've been, you and I were talking earlier about uh, Damage's endings, which we can get into more later, but they're absolutely fantastic. I and mean, when you can leave a film on such a high note, like the ending of Whiplash, at the very end, I mean, I was electrified, I was like, this is amazing. And then once it ended, I was like, dang. I did not want it to stop. I wanted to wanted it to keep going for as long as possible.
2: Yeah, that's something that I think Damien Chazelle is especially good at. His endings in all three of his movies are arguably the best parts. And he always leaves you wanting more. You never get tired of the story. They're just completely engrossing throughout the entire film. And the ending is just the perfect crescendo.
0: Good word, crescendo. Thank you. You're welcome.
1: It's now, almost like he knows music.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Almost. Oh, my God.
0: <laughs> Well, anyway, Whiplash, there's a lot of stuff that's – the reason I like it is because it has a lot more deeper meanings to it than – well, certainly First Man and then a little bit more than La La Land. First Man doesn't have a lot of deep meanings, but La La Land has plenty, and Whiplash, I think, has just a little bit more. How dare you? The point
2: of, of First Man is that space is cool. <laughs>
0: but deep meanings. You know, We all know that space is cool. I mean, come on, it's space. Mm-hmm. That's not very deep, we all know it.
2: Yeah, uh I, all of Damien Chazelle's movies are full of meaning. I think the one unifying theme throughout all three of them is the uh idea of dreamers and people who will sacrifice so much in order to be remembered, to be great, and to live their dream. All three of the all three of his movies really hold to that theme. in Whiplash, Damien uh uh Neiman uh sacrifices Neiman. His mental health for uh for greatness he sacrifices his friends his social life in La La Land they sacrifice their relationship in order to be great and in First Man Neil is willing to sacrifice his life the future of
0: his family in order to be great and to contribute and to be remembered now how do you think that's interpreted through the different movies because I would say the ending to La La Land is certainly more positive than the end to Whiplash in that because they sacrifice their relationship they're now happy with where they are as people and Whiplash he's really like the sacrificing part is the worst part. Is he sacrificing the good parts of his life for this terrible part in his life? Which, I mean, success is great and all, but is it really success if you aren't happy and you aren't in a, like, like just happy in any way?
2: Yeah, I think that you can see kind of Chiselle's progression of how he feels about this through his three movies. Maybe as he became great and became, like, a memorable figure that history will look back on, you can see his opinion kind of favors. In Whiplash, it is... It's not a happy ending. It's a sad ending. Uh, Chazelle even talks about in interviews how after the end of Whiplash, Neiman does achieve his dream of dying drunk, broke, and full of heroin at the age of 34. But at least he's remembered. In La La Land, a lot of people think that La La Land has a happy ending. I disagree. They think that it has a sad ending. I disagree. I think it is a very happy ending. I agree. They're able to live their dreams, but they had to sacrifice their relationship and a big part of themselves. And then in First Man, there's not that much of a sacrifice. He is willing to sacrifice, but he ends up going down in history as one of the most important people and a very memorable figure that history will look back on forever. So I think you, you and can he see, didn't have to sacrifice. Yeah, much. he he was willing to sacrifice, but he didn't have to. Of course, there are little sacrifices here and there, but he didn't end up losing his life, even though he was completely prepared to.
0: And that's what you. That's what I think like is what happens throughout these three movies is that they sacrifice less and less and become more and more successful. So maybe the lesson here is that it's not about what you sacrifice, it's about what you sacrifice it for and if it's worth that sacrifice. Just, just because you're sacrificing things in your life doesn't mean you're going to be successful.
2: It's about what you're willing to sacrifice, not what you do sacrifice. Yes,
0: that's very true. It's very true. Good points. I'll, another point I want to bring up about Whiplash is this sort of power struggle between his two father figures, who's his actual father, and then Fletcher. Is These two very powerful father figures in his life, and they're pulling him like kind of like a, a rope. They're like pulling him to two different ends about where he should be in his life, and he's having trouble placing himself. And it's just, it's an abusive relationship and then, like, a loving relationship to pull it away from the abusive relationship, but he can't help himself.
2: Yeah, you can see the dichotomy between Fletcher and his dad very early on in the film. It's a very minor detail. When uh, they're watching the movie and the person is walking behind uh, uh, Neiman's dad and bumps into him, his dad apologizes. He didn't do anything wrong, but he just immediately tries to avoid conflict, avoid confrontation, and apologizes. And then that is the complete polar opposite of Fletcher, who will cause conflict, cause strife, and try to work his way into Neiman's head by just doing everything he can to break him down so that he can build him back up.
0: Yeah. It's just a really interesting film to watch this abusive relationship take hold, where it's... I like it because it's not an abusive relationship you're used to watching. Usually Mm -hmm. it's like a husband and wife. The husband abuses the wife. That's what you see throughout a lot of art, through a lot of movies, which is what happens most time in real life. But it's really interesting to see movies where it's an abusive relationship where you don't think there would be one, like a teacher and his student, or like in The Strange Thing About the Johnsons, a son abusing his father in very strange and wrong ways. If you want to learn more about that, you can (laughs) listen to our director's analysis on Ari Aster, who directed The Strange Thing About the Johnsons. Also, go watch that. It's really crazy. You won't see you you won't see it coming. It's really <laughs> gross. Except that now you know that it comes. Uh a little bit, yeah. Just imagine being Damien Chazelle's former
2: uh jazz drumming director and watching this movie and be like, Wow, is it
0: really that bad? <laughs> I'm sure he wasn't though, because Terrence Fletcher is terrible. Like one of the It's just so iconic how bad, like horrible person he is. And incredibly iconic. And he pushes andrew neiman so far that he becomes great which j- is horrifying at the end is that that not only did he do this but that it worked
2: jk simmons as terrence fletcher i think is one of the greatest performances not only mm-hmm. for jk simmons but even i would say of all time i think he is such an iconic uh that is his iconic role like i a lot of people will view him as j Jones jameson huh. i will forever remember jk simmons as terrence fletcher and he's just absolutely incredible. He acts it perfectly. I could not even imagine anyone else in that role.
0: Now, I see him as both Jay Jonah Jameson and Terrence Fletcher combined into one role. <laughs> but I would say that Terrence Fletcher is probably one of the best, if not the best, supporting roles in the past decade, at least. Easily. It's incredible, easily. like Just phenomenal performance right there. Winning
2: an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor does not properly convey how amazing he
0: was. He was just absolutely incredible. I mean the verbal abuse that comes from his lips and the truth behind it is haunting. Like I can feel him really believing these horrible things he's saying to these students about how terrible they are, calling them slurs, making fun of their weight on purpose and I could feel the truth behind it which is like I'm afraid to meet JK Simmons a little bit because of how much truth there's there but it's incredible.
2: One amazing fun fact about JK Simmons uh, uh about his portrayal of Terrence Fletcher is There is one specific line in La La in Whiplash that was actually a mistake that made it to the final cut, but he refused to do it again. So it's in the scene where he is, again, verbally assaulting one of his students. He says, and I'm going to censor myself here, I will F you like a pig. The original line was, gut you like a pig, but he messed up, said that line, and Damien Giselle loved it so much that he kept it in the final cut, even though J.K. Simmons refused to do it again. So you can see they cut away from him, so you don't see him saying it, but you just hear it.
0: That's incredible. Yeah. It just sounds so disgusting. <laughs> Have you guys seen Black Mirror? Oh, we'll love Black it's Mirror. It's like the first episode yeah. of Black Mirror. There you go. Anyway, um, Whiplash is incredible. If you haven't seen Whiplash, go watch Whiplash. Why haven't you? It's powerful. It's like horrifying to watch. It's his most dramatic and intense movie by far. Followed by First Band, followed by La La Land. I don't think La La Land's that intense, but it's just, like, artistic.
2: La La Land is intense because of the emotions it makes you feel.
0: I disagree, but it's very... <laughs> it's much, it's it's his least comedic film, oh, I would say. yeah. Well... No, that's, that's not true. No, I think First Man... First Man, Man is, is definitely least comedic. Because, yeah, First Man Whiplash. is his least comedic because there's no way that there could be any comedy in there, but Whiplash has such Whiplash funny lines. Hilarious. Such funny lines. It is
2: just angry La La Land.
0: It's his least comedic-toned <laughs> movie. Yeah. I would say that, but it's definitely hilarious if you're watching it with a group of friends. So funny, and it's hard to watch when you're watching it alone. Mm-hmm. But... Depending on how you want to watch it. Watch it.
2: Also, someone who I doesn't think uh, who I don't think gets enough credit in all of his movies is Justin Hurwitz, mm-hmm. his former or his former college roommate, who has scored all three of his films, and he is just absolutely incredible. Like his scores are iconic. I think that he deserved the Oscar for best score for all three of the films. Unfortunately, I think he only got it for one. La Land.
0: Yeah, but it, the scores are just incredible. I don't think it was considered for whiplash because it was mostly only drums. That's true. Which, that's the same reason Birdman wasn't considered as well the same year, mm-hmm. or later year. First Man same wasn't year? even same nominated
2: year. for best score, and it should have won. In my, I opinion. think
0: it should have been at least nominated. It was a really good score. It was great. What won that year?
2: Uh, Black Panther.
0: Okay. Oh, you're right, for yep. score. It wasn't terrible, yeah.
2: It's not not bad, but I think it at least should have been nominated.
0: Wasn't If Beale Street Could Talk nominated that year? That's also a great score. That was really good. Anyway, now that we've talked about Whiplash, we can get to what you guys consider the pinnacle of Damien Chazelle Cinema. Oh, I did not say that. No? I think that La La
2: Land and Whiplash are completely equal in quality. It just depends on what you're in the mood for at that given time. I, I could not possibly put one above the other.
0: Well, seeing as only you've seen those two,
1: Ryan, which do you like more? I think I like La La Land more, but I I agree with Ben that they're on such an equal level, but depending on the mood you want, they're both just I like Whiplash more, but La La Land is still absolutely incredible. See, I thought it was interesting that you said Whiplash had deeper meanings and deeper themes than La La Land. Because for me, one of the highlights of La La Land is the core themes that it speaks on. I don't think La La Land cut as deep
0: as Whiplash did, which is interesting. La because... La Land wasn't nearly as subtle, and it wasn't
1: nearly as personal for really? Damien Chazelle. Well, for Damien Chazelle, but I am talking about you. Damien. Well, the what personal is the mo- <laughs> most
0: personal is the most creative. Bong Joon Ho, Mars Scorsese. So <laughs> you can't just throw him in
1: there just to, <laughs> just to have Bong Joon Ho get mentioned.
0: I relate more to Whiplash because I've never gone through like a serious breakup, like. As shown in La La Land, I've never been like heartbroken like that, but I can I can empathize with it at the very least.
2: Way to flex, Dylan.
0: <laughs> Thank you. But anyway, what was I gonna say? <laughs> I flexed too hard. And I don't remember what I was gonna say. <laughs> so
2: La La Land. Uh, this is my first Damien Chazelle movie. I saw this before I saw Whiplash, and I was immediately blown away. I I saw it after the Oscar nominations had come out, where I'd heard, "Oh, it's the best movie of the year. It's incredible." But before the Oscars actually happened, so in between that time. I saw it, I was expecting, like, I like musicals. I thought it was going to be good. I was completely blown away. Immediately shot to my favorite movie at the time. And that is, I, La La Land set me down on a path of watching a lot of classic musicals and watching Whiplash and getting really invested in Damien Chazelle. La La Land is a, also an incredibly personal movie for me because I've shown it on, like, three different first dates. <laughs> so I, I, I have a special connection to La La Land.
1: Good flex, Ben. Yeah, thanks. There you go. Um
2: La La Land is it, it's absolutely incredible. Uh the cinematography is uh, by far I think the best in all three of the movies. The acting, the acting is stellar. I a lot of people don't like um uh Ryan Gosling as Sebastian. I completely disagree. I think he's incredible. Um and the opening scene of La La Land is In my opinion, one of the best opening scenes of all time. The movie starts and ends on its two best scenes. Have you seen The Host by Bong Joon-ho? I have not seen
0: The Host by Bong Joon-ho. I just recently watched it. One of the best openings of all time. Because you mentioned openings. Incredible. Just shocking and intense. Very good. Go watch The Host if you haven't watched The Host by Bong Joon-ho.
2: I'm also a sucker for one-shots, and I mm. know technically the opening scene was not a one-shot. There were three different shots, but it was filmed to look like a one-shot. It is just mind-blowing. And then the amount of production that went into closing down a full like strip of freeway in Hollywood
0: is mind-blowing that's massive yeah yeah i become more and more skeptical of my love to one shots as the years go by because it seems like you know birdman struck gold and everyone's starting to like follow it and all that and so i'm very skeptical when i'm like here like ooh, this scene is a one shot or this short film is a one shot because a lot of times it's there's not a lot of deeper meaning to the one shot birdman had that deeper meaning and i think I don't think 1917 had much of a deeper meaning to the purpose of the one-shot, other than the fact that it looked beautiful.
2: Yeah, 1917's uh, meaning for their one-shot was, hey, look, what if we made an entire movie look like a one-shot?
0: Yeah, and I didn't like that until I watched it, because it was just so beautiful that it, like, and blew me away so much that I didn't care that there was no super deep meaning to it.
2: Okay, in defense of 1917, the reason why they say they did it as a one-shot is because they wanted you to feel the actual time and the pressure of being in, in the war. But yeah. back to La La Land. Um, yeah. I think that the the deeper meaning behind doing uh a lot of the, all of their mu- most of their musical numbers as a one shot or at least as a very long shot is because they were trying to emulate that classic yeah. Hollywood style that you see in movies like Singing in the Rain, which you are probably going to be talking about a lot when talking about yeah. La La Land. They it helped capture that classic Hollywood style.
0: That's why I like that opening scene so much as a winner, as compared to like some other one's I've seen. But I try to be more skeptical when it comes to it, and not just like it because it's a water. But it does have that deeper meaning, which makes it so much better. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that it was a water, and most of the musical numbers are water in this movie, because it emulates that classic Even
2: the the musical numbers that aren't wonners like in um uh the second musical number, um, someone in the crowd, yeah, someone in the crowd. Uh, they it's a series of very long shots, so you're still getting that uh that style, even though. They can't actually have it be a oneer because they change location so much, and they want to show the passage of time. It's also
0: to jump away from the oneer idea. I just recently thought about this in my headspace right now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> just recently,
0: just now. La La Land is a very unusual musical in that there's not actually that much singing in it compared to dialogue.
2: No, it it it's not like some other movies where, mm. uh, like this is always the example that I use. Like, Greatest Showman, where there is pretty much no dialogue, or the dialogue is insubstantial, and the entire story is told through music. Mm -hmm. La La Land is, first and foremost, a great story and a great movie, where the music comes second. They just integrate it so flawlessly, and the music is so good that it makes the film incredible.
0: Yeah, I can feel that. And I kind of like that about the movie, because Ryan Gosling's not that great of a singer. (laughs) He's not terrible, but I mean it's supposed to be realistic. And I appreciate yeah. that representation as a person who's not good <laughs> at singing. I appreciate that.
2: They weren't looking for the best singers. They Thank were God. looking for people who could be real.
0: Which is good. I like it. Mm-hmm.
2: It works. And don't get me wrong,
0: Emma Stone is a great singer.
2: Ryan Gosling not bad. Not mm-hmm. as good though.
0: I like the singing and all and I like the musicals, but I think the best part is the dance parts oh, of the songs, absolutely. the dance numbers. Yeah, and Ryan that's the best part. Ryan Gosling
2: learned how to play piano for La La Land. He did yeah. all of his own piano, all of his own stunts. It did look very
0: good, yeah. And the dancing's incredible.
2: Oh, it's so good. And like uh Damien Giselle does this thing where he carries over actors from one movie to another. Mm-hmm. J.K. Simmons, again, great, great supporting actor. We started snapping at the yeah. end. It was it was great. And then uh, Ryan Gosling went from this into First Man. And now Emma Stone is going to be in his next movie, Babylon. Babylon.
0: So, <clears throat> Ryan, what themes
1: do you detect in La La Land? Would you like to go in depth about that? I'm so glad you asked because now we can talk about the ending. We mentioned Whiplash's mm-hmm. ending. And now we're going to talk about La La Land's ending, which I think is certainly one of the best endings of all time to a film. And Damon Chazelle is just – his masterpieces often are because those endings are so incredible, and they tie everything together, including the themes. And so the ending – spoiler uh if you haven't seen it, which you should go see it because it's amazing. Even if you have seen it, go see it again.
2: We're putting the spoiler alert so far into the, uh, into the show that at this point, if you cared about spoilers, you would have left.
0: That
1: is true. So thank you for listening still. (laughs) Ryan, go ahead and talk about those spoilers, huh? Yeah. All right. So it ends. They break up to pursue their careers. And then it's five years later. We have uh, Mia. She has a family now. She has a husband, has a kid. And they're going for a night out. And they go to a jazz club. Also, she's an incredibly successful actress at this point. That is true.
2: Kind of the most important part.
1: Probably the most important part. Correct. She is successful. And they're going to a jazz club. It happens to be Sebastian's named Sebs, which is the name – was it the name or logo or something? But Mia, like, did that. It yeah, was... he,
2: he originally wanted it to be called Chicken on a Stick, <laughs> uh, on a stick. after uh, Charlie Parker. But then Mia was like, well, nobody's going to want to go to Chicken on a Stick. She called it Sebs. And he's like, no, I'm going to call it Chicken on a Stick. And then, oh, he called it Sebs.
1: Wow, how beautiful. So he's in there. He's playing it. They sit down. Mia and her husband – and then, of course, the beautiful theme starts to play. And then...
2: The best movie theme of all time, in my opinion.
1: It is very good. And then... Well, we, then we get swept away into a fantasy where we essentially... It, it was sort of... Someone had said something where it was the intersection of their memories and their imagination. So tying all of that together. Um, and, of course, it was chock full of homages to Singing in the Rain and all other classic movies.
2: This, I felt, was really their version of Broadway Melody. There's no lyrics, but just the music and the shots, and then showing a slightly different version, a slightly exaggerated version of their story really felt like the Singing in the Rain Broadway Melody sequence to me.
0: So do you think that they um, gotta dance? They gotta dance. Gotta dance.
1: (laughs) Wow. Thank you for the representation of bad singers. <laughs> that was beautiful, Dylan. No, it wasn't. Hey. Anywho, but yeah, so as I'm glad you brought that up, no dialogue. It's a master class in visual storytelling. Oh my god, yeah. And so that goes on for we like just watch it right beforehand. It goes on for like six minutes or Sef- seven. Yeah, six or seven minutes. Yeah, that entire sequence. Um and it goes through important parts in their life, like their first meeting, where originally Sebastian Brush passed her. And this one they kiss.
2: <gasps> and then J.K. Simmons starts snapping.
0: Can I mention how incredible that moment was in the movie when he just like smacks into her, keeps walking? Because the thing that they promoted the most in the trailers, in the teaser trailers, and everything was that he runs up and kisses her. And it's that moment. It's that exact moment. You're like, for me, the person who's seen the trailer so many times because he's so excited. I'm like, all right, he's going to kiss her. <laughs> I don't know why he's going to kiss her. The story hasn't built up to that anymore, but he's going to kiss her. He's going to kiss her. And he just smacks right into her. It's so funny.
2: I didn't even see the trailers, so I was the opposite way. When they got to the end and then he kissed her, I was not expecting that at all. That was what really drove it home for me.
1: So no matter what, if you've seen the trailers or not, it's still shocking. There's your paratext. There you go. <laughs> to shout out, Nick. Anywho, so then there was that moment. There was also, there's was moment where John Legend comes up and he's about to offer him to like get into that. The pop band, the modern. That's also very funny because yes. he just waves and then John Legend goes, okay, and then leaves. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you...
2: John Legend's face there was like, "I, ah, I tried. It's <laughs> yeah. hilarious. He
1: waves him off, so he doesn't do that. And then he goes, and the real way the story went, he was not able to show up to the one-woman show that Mia put on in the fantasy. He is there, and it's packed, standing ovation, and he's, and he's the, the happiest. he's one to stand up. Exactly. Uh, and then it continues with there. They do uh, something reminiscent of their... Starlight Dance when it did that thing.
2: The scene that was inexplicably mimicked in
0: shape of water.
1: <laughs> yes. Um eh.
2: Eh. It,
0: yeah. it, 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 I would say it was inspired by. I wouldn't say mimicked. I would. It wasn't like Well, the whole point was that it's her fantasy of like her being in love with the fish <laughs> and the fact that now <laughs> she can like not only talk but sing, and that is her like fantasy. It's in her head, and it's more about like I don't know. Just it's...
2: that one dancing scene compared to that one dancing scene in uh, in Shape of Water. They look so visually similar. I would say inspired by.
1: Okay. Well, pastiche up to interprétation, but there was so then that whole thing happened, and then. They, they're playing like a little home video and they're watching it of they have a kid now. It's so cute. It is very cute. Uh, and then it shows them cool. together, like a nanny comes in or a babysitter. They go out for a night in the town and then they go to a club, the jazz club, that isn't Seb's in the fantasy world. Um, and then they're sitting down together and then they go in for a kiss.
2: One interesting note that I, that I felt about the end is... She seems a lot more affectionate physically with Sebastian at the end than he, than she does with her husband, because at uh, with her husband they're just sitting next to each other, they're not really interacting that much. But when she's with Sebastian at the end during the fantasy, he has uh, his hand on her leg, and they're just so happy and then they kiss at the end. So it well it, it does seem to be like they would be happier together than they are than she is with her husband. But that doesn't matter because they got to achieve their dreams.
0: That's also just their imagination of what things might have played out as. Where in reality, had they probably dated for, what, five years and then gone to dinner, there's no promise that
1: he'd have his hand on her leg and that they'd kiss at the end of the night. (laughs) Relationship that love would fade. (laughs) Um, But that brings up a good point that I want to ask is because there is some uh, dissent on this matter. Whose fantasy was it? Do you think it mattered or do you think it was a particular character's fantasy? of rewriting their their love story.
2: I don't think it's necessary. I think it's simultaneously both of theirs and none of theirs. I think it's they're both thinking of different things, but the version that we are seeing is not it's not like a diegetic fantasy, you know what I mean? Like it's it's what the
0: audience hopes. Yeah, I think it's Damien Chazelle's fantasy. Yeah. It's his fantasy and is the audience fantasy. It's like that typical Hollywood cookie cutter ending of like they end up together and they're happy like singing in the rain. They're all happy, and it's the end, and then it cuts back to reality because that's not what reality is. Right. You know, Sometimes there isn't like
1: the happy ending in the way you think it would be, but the movie still has a happy ending. Mm-hmm. But the reason I brought it up is in that fantasy, we see Sebastian make three key changes in the decisions he made. The one where he decides to kiss her instead of brushing past, the one where he's able to attend the play, and then the other where he says no to John Legend.
2: Uh, four, where he decides to go to France with her,
1: that is true, and that's the fourth one. Um, and so he doesn't end up in that fantasy getting his club or accomplishing his dreams, whereas uh, Mia did still become an actress and moves to Paris. Of course,
2: I think that is open to interpretation. You could argue that he did end up getting his own club in France because you do see him performing there. That might ne- not necessarily be his, but he still does achieve his dream. I thought in 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 the fantasy.
0: So would you argue that the fantasy is showing what would happen if only one of them gave up their dream and not both? Like, th- th- like if only one of them gave up their dream instead of both of them giving up their relationship?
2: I don't think either of them gave up their dream in the fantasy.
0: No? No. You think he eventually got his nightclub?
2: Yeah. Yeah? I think he did. It, maybe not necessarily in L.A., but at the very least in France.
0: So do you think it's showing you that this ending, the reality ending of it, isn't a true all-ending to all relationships. You can have it all. You can have a relationship and follow your dreams, but it's just so much harder.
2: I don't think so. I think it's the opposite way. We we saw in the fantasy they both maintain the relationship and they both get their dream, but I think he was showing that in the fantasy because that's not necessarily practical. You do have to make sacrifices in order to be great, which I think is the theme of all of his movies.
1: Hmm. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't, because my interpretation of it was that It's sort of Sebastian's fantasy of what happens. And there are a lot of people who think it's, like, Mia's idolization. Like, I was talking with Ryan Mayers about it the other night. And he was saying, oh, yeah, when Mia's fantasy at the end, when that happens. Um, And I think it's interesting in either way. Because if it were Mia's fantasy, and let's say, because my interpretation, I don't think he did get the club. But he could possibly have gotten the club in uh, Paris. But that'd be interesting to see how she still accomplishes her dream. And gets the guy at the end. Whereas if it were Sebastian's. It's a lot more remorseful in a way. Or melancholic. Because he's regretting. These key decisions he made. Where he eventually. Chose to sacrifice a relationship. In pursuit of his dreams. And in reality he accomplished those dreams. But obviously he doesn't have her. And so I don't know. I think it's a very interesting theme. That they both got everything they want. Except for each other. In the end. And. I was, um, and is it? Do you think there's a choice there? Do you think you have to make a sacrifice of one or the other? I don't or... think you have to. I think you have to be willing to.
2: Exa- that's exactly what I was gonna say. Like it's that's what we see in First Man. You have to be willing to sacrifice everything.
0: But you don't have to. Not you don't much. have to now. If you can really, th- if you really think about it, and you really think of a way, maybe you can compromise, or maybe you can give a little. You don't have to give it all, and you can get everything you want, as long as you're willing to risk it.
2: And I think the most important. Damien Chazelle part... is an incredible gambler. Yeah, <laughs> the most important part about that last scene is as Mia is walking out, she turns to Sebastian and they both smile. That is what turns it from a sad ending of they didn't end up together to a happy ending of they both got to achieve their dreams and they wouldn't change it. Right. Uh, the, Damien Chazelle has said in interviews that yes, La La Land is a love story It's not a love story about a relationship or about two
1: people. It's a love story about people and their dreams. Mm -hmm. I think so. I I would contend that it's a bittersweet ending because, of course, again, they don't end up with each other, but they do get those dreams and they still have their happiness. The smile at the end is communicating, "Hey, it's all right. We did this. Couldn't have done it without you." Which is one of when I had initially seen this film. Which, Dylan, you, it was a movie night. It was at Lily's house, right? Yeah. But we were all there. Yeah. was it your film that you brought over to show us? Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was amazing. So thank you for for making that happen. You're welcome. But the initial uh like interpretation that I took away, the core themes that I got at that time was, Oh, that's so cool. You can be in love and have love and I don't want to say like beneficial or something, mm-hmm. but it doesn't need to last forever, but it can still be so impactful and yeah. develop you as a person and help you grow And get closer to your dreams and whatnot. Um, And just because that relationship doesn't last forever or isn't around when you currently have accomplished the dreams doesn't make it any less special. And it doesn't negate your dreams either, having accomplished your dreams either. So that was one of the main things that I took away from it the first time viewing it. And I viewed it like once since. I wasn't able to rewatch it recently for this but I really, really, really want to now and see if I still hold that same perspective.
2: If you're interested in watching La La Land, currently, at the time of this recording, I believe it's free to watch on Amazon Prime, but you just have to watch it with ads. And for some reason, there's inexplicably an ad in the middle of someone in the crowd. Like They get to place these ads wherever they want. It's not like every five minutes. And they put it in the middle of the song between when she's in the bathroom and then walking out. I don't understand it, but you should still watch it.
0: Anyway, going back to what you were saying, Ryan, <laughs> about the themes of the movie. I think one of the things that I took away from it is a lesson about relationships in that if you're going to be in a relationship, you have to support each other. And that's a lot of what they fail to do in the middle of their relationship is supporting each other and each other's dreams. They do it in the beginning and they do it after they officially like break up. Is He's still supporting her and she's supporting him in a way by letting him support her because like emotionally if he didn't have that opportunity i think he'd wallow in himself but he she let him have the opportunity to support her and so it's it's the lesson of you have to be willing to sacrifice your dreams and you have to be willing to or not sacrifice your dreams sacrifice your relationships for your dreams and you have to be willing to support your partner when they make that choice to sacrifice is that they want to sacrifice the relationship for the dreams. Seb wants to do this, and he can't be a part of her life for that. And Mia wants to do this, and he can't be a part of, or she can't be a part of his life for this part. And they're trying to follow their dreams and whatnot, and they aren't supporting each other enough. They're saying, why are you... They're both like trying to make those sacrifices without having the conversation of, I can't do this or that, while still um, in a relationship where you depend on me for this and that is that they don't support each other enough, which is unfortunate. And that's what leads to the demise of their relationship. And that's sort of what the fantasy sequence shows, is it shows them uh, making sacrifices a little bit for their relationship, but mostly supporting each other, and still making the time to support each other. Because, I mean, there's a part of it where it's like, sacrifice some of your relationships for your dreams, and there's the other side of it where you can sacrifice a little bit of your dreams for your relationship because your relationship is where another part of where you're happy. It's not all about success; it's all about just happiness, being happy in this world. And you don't have to be happy. If you find your success, you're not guaranteed happiness. And if you are in a relationship without success, you're not guaranteed happiness either. But if you want, like putting all your chips in one or another basket is a bad idea, if you ask me. But if you're able to push both at the same time, maybe to a lesser extent. Had you put, you know, focus on one or the other, you could find more happiness or at least maybe be more guaranteed in a way to find happiness is that you're supporting your significant other and hopefully they're supporting you back. And so you can find your dreams, you can like achieve your dreams and still be happy in a way. And that's sort of what I took away from that final sequence is that like this is what should happen. It's not what always happens. It's not what you get out of most relationships. But if you really want the best relationship that you can have, this is what it is. Support, support, support. Yeah, beautiful.
2: Absolutely. Uh, Before we move on to First Man, because I do want to talk about First Man, there's just one thing that's always bothered me in La La Land that I cannot understand. I want your opinions on it. Go ahead. Uh, So there's this small piece of Sebastian's character that I noticed and appreciated. Sebastian really likes cooking. He mm-hmm. he cooks for the dinner, and then at the end, he is cooking just for himself, for his own pleasure. So I think that's an interesting part of Sebastian's character that Giselle included. Now, the part that makes me struggle with this is during the scene where they're fighting at dinner, the smoke alarm goes off, he goes over, takes something out of the oven. And I cannot, for the life of me, figure out what he was trying to make. Because the thing he takes out of the oven is some abomination. There's this massive thing that looks like almost a pie, but formed out of slices
0: of white bread
2: that was just mm. burned. you guys have any insight on that?
0: That could be what it was. I've heard of people making uh, sliced white bread pies, and that you just like mush down the bread and you make a crust out of it, and you make the filling. If you're really cheap and poor and can't afford it, which but it's at this huge, point they kind of are. it's huge, and there's no mold around
2: it. Massive there's pie. no like pan or anything. And Also, at this point, Sebastian's a famous rock star.
0: Yeah, I guess you're right. I'm gonna have to rewatch it and get back to you on that because I can't. <laughs> I have without done, looking. Yeah, let me look. I this. have done Google searches. I have like <laughs> tried to look on
2: forums, and nobody can answer this question. All right, so First when, Man.
1: On which viewing did you notice that, the 3rd or the 14th?
2: I believe it was around the 6th.
1: Okay. <laughs> okay. All right, so First Man. I haven't seen it. I was never able to catch it, but you still very much enjoy it. You say it's the least of the Chazelle films, but what do you, what are your favorite parts about it?
2: Yeah, so I have seen First Man. I saw it opening weekend because I was incredibly excited for it, and I have opinions. I do believe that it is certainly the worst of his three major films. That being said, it is still an incredible film, and I would recommend anyone go see it. I believe it's available for streaming on HBO Go. Um, It is by far the least Damien Chazelle film because, first off, not about jazz. So instantly, take it down a few pegs. But the thing that struck me immediately as what was very interesting to me was the cinematography and the editing.
0: Yes, Dylan? I'm going to cut you off real quick and say I Googled it and the script says burnt apple pie. That is not an apple pie.
2: (laughs) It's a burnt apple pie. That is, That was in no way an apple pie, but it's fine. I'm glad we solved G- the mystery. Damien Chazelle does tend to stray a lot from his screenplays. Like, that's the thing that I noticed when I read the screenplay of Whiplash. It is vastly different. And same in La La Land, it strays a little less than it does in Whiplash.
0: But when it comes to burned apple pies, he follows
2: through. This is a hill I will die on. That is not an apple pie. <laughs> so, the editing and the cinematography in First Man was incredibly, like... Shocking to me, because in La La Land, uh, especially, and to a lesser extent in Whiplash, there's a lot of one shots and there's a lot of long shots where you just meditate on the scenery and the beauty of the scene. Whereas in First Man, it is pretty much all shown in close-ups and extreme
0: close-ups. It felt very different than in yeah, the
2: movie. and the editing is very not choppy, but it's very fast. They cut between a lot of different shots much faster than they would in La La Land, which has very little editing going on because so many of the shots are wonners And I was I was really shocked when I saw it. Like, it wasn't bad. It fit the chaotic vibe that they were going for in trying to capture how dangerous and how uh, intimidating space travel was in the early days. But it, it was just something that that was very shocking to me. But... It really helped to the film, I think, because at the end when they get to the moon (spoiler alert) they get to the moon. So uh, we think, yeah. I would have laughed so hard if they he it gets the in. Yeah, it's he gets in the shuttle and they like take him away and he walks out and Kubrick is there like on a stage. <laughs> that the movie would have been incredible, but it still is. So at when the, when they get to the moon at, and as he steps out of the capsule, the aspect ratio changes. And I saw this in theater, So the actual like screen expanded. It was it was yeah, really cool. That was cool. Uh, and it goes from being short and choppy and close up to these really elegant long takes and this sort of meditative long shots. And it really helped separate the uh the scenes on the moon from the scenes on earth. And then after he comes back, we talk a lot about uh, we talk a lot about his endings. I think that the ending of First Man is his weakest ending because the yeah. true ending was on the moon. When he gets back to Earth, my personal opinion is I probably should have just cut that part. I think they should have ended, should have on ended it on the moon. Uh and but the shots on Earth after he comes back are a lot more slow and meditative. And there are some longer shots. Because he's changed. Yeah, because he's changed. He's now relaxed. He's achieved
0: his dream. I thought the movie was good. I thought the special effects were incredible. And I thought the sound design was incredible. But the story was lacking. I agree. I um, did not... I mean, he didn't write it.
2: Yes, this was this was the one of his three major movies that he did not write himself. And
0: I think that should teach us a lot about Damien Chazelle. The more he does, the better. I think... Okay. I think... <laughs> in terms of biopics it's better than most i agree i with would that. agree that it's better than most
2: especially because it came out on the same year as bohemian rhapsody Ugh. and uh, what a,
0: that that is bad movie that is not a good biopic but anyway first man to me the problem with it is i watched it and i loved it and i couldn't find a single thing that i arguably disliked about it but i cannot for the life of me remember anything <laughs> about that movie it was not memorable in the slightest is, it was not unique that is completely untrue all the shots ah, on the
2: moon are completely memorable that's I, the parts i do remember but i agree about everything else it is not a i've seen it twice and i've seen the other two movies probably around 20 times each
0: i'm gonna need to rewatch first man because i really i remember sitting in the theater and like really enjoying it i remember shaking in the theater because of how like loud the rockets were mm-hmm. i remember thinking this is like the nitty gritty, dirty take on space travel and how intense it really is. And I remember thinking that about the sound design, about how great the special effects were. It was that how, this is how really, truly intense space travel is like really is. And I remember leaving the theater not remembering a single thing except for the moon.
2: I should probably rewatch at least the first 15 minutes, because during those f- first 15 minutes, I was so just stunned by the massive departure in cinematography and editing that I had come to expect of Damien Chazelle. But if anything, I, sh- I think that shows that he has range.
0: Yeah. Now, I'm not going to consider this a spoiler, since it's a historical fact. They do get to the moon. And there <laughs> no. are not moon aliens. Dang it. That we know. But apart from that the scene where they're doing the Apollo mission I don't remember which one it is but they lock the door and a small fire oh, breaks out inside yeah. and then it just blows up was so well shot and so intense and it makes me like it, it still makes me sad to think about that's the only other part that I thought was truly memorable because of how quick it happened mm-hmm. and then it's like Thinking about what went wrong, why did this go wrong? Why was it locked from the outside? Why did the fire catch? Why weren't they? Why was there no fire extinguishers to put out the fire? Why was their comms off? There were so many things that happened wrong that you're thinking, what if these things? I mean, it's historical, so we know these things aren't going to happen to Neil Armstrong. But as a, if this was fictional as, like, a moviegoer, you're thinking, what if this happens? What if these same things happen when Neil Armstrong goes up? Our main character, our hero, our protagonist. And that was, like, the way he approached that was just so well done. It wasn't graphic. It was just very quick because it happened quick in real life, and it was very haunting.
2: That's another thing that I think marks a huge turning point in the film for Ryan Gosling's character. Ryan Gosling does a great job acting. He's not the most human character neil armstrong especially after that point seems to show a lot less emotion and a lot less sort of he's he's a lot less animated he's a lot more solemn and a lot more serious almost borderline sociopathic like in terms of not feeling the emotions i feel like you kind of had to be to do this to like put your entire life on the line your entire future on the line just to try doing this to be the first man as the title implies And I think that is a huge departure from Gosling's portrayal in La La Land, and it worked.
0: Yeah. I mean, he was all right in it. The whole movie itself was just all right. Not super remarkable, but good. Well done. It was well made.
2: I think that if you compared it to a lot of other movies, you would – especially from that year, you would think it was – like much better than it was you just it fails to say that
0: about a lot of movies
2: that's true but it fails to live up to the damien chazelle expectations yeah
0: i think it fails to live up to my expectations of what i think a great movie is just because it wasn't artistic in a lot of ways like i thought the moon scene was incredibly artistic and i thought it was technically well made but i don't think there was much in the story that made it stand that's, out
2: that's fair although i have to give like again i know i keep bringing this up But a huge shout out to Justin Hurwitz.
0: The score was really good.
2: Absolutely incredible score, which I think it sounded like a Justin Hurwitz score. It it was very reminiscent of the Mia and Sebastian theme uh, from La La Land when Mm. he lands on the moon. And it's a... It's the start of both.
0: Yeah, it's a really good theme. It's a really good score. He's really good at writing music. I like it a lot. Anyway, speaking of La La Land... It's time to do the movie of the week which is Singing in the Rain, not La La Land, but it is Singing in the Rain, which was directed by Stanley Donen and Gene Kelly and came out in 1952. It was written by, well, story by Betty Comden and Adolph Green. I think they had like a writers' room filled with people including Gene Kelly and all of them. It was starring Gene Kelly, Donald really? O'Connor. Yeah, yeah, he was in it. Can you believe that? Donald O'Connor, Debbie Reynolds and Gene Hagen. The story was written uh, around pre-existing songs, so they like they had the songs, they had the idea for a story, and they had to sort of melt it around those songs, which works in a way. Mm-hmm. I liked it. And there were two songs that were not original, and those were Moses Supposes, which is just where mm-hmm. the speech etiquette Moses person...
2: Moses Supposes slaps. It <laughs> it's really pretty does. Good. Yeah, it really it's does. really good.
0: And then, of course, the Broadway melody.
2: Gotta dance. Broadway melody. It, so, real quick about my pains about Singing in the Rain. That is my third favorite. One, of, Sorry, not my third favorite, but the other movie in my top three. It's La La Land, Whiplash, Singing in the Rain. My top three. Cannot pick a favorite. Uh, and I think that Broadway Melody... I've had disagreements on, uh, with people on this. I think Broadway Melody is the best scene in movie history.
0: <laughs> um, I could see you making an argument for that more than some other scenes, certainly. So, I could see the arguments there, but... I could see a lot of people disagreeing with you in a lot of better scenes, but and that being said, to that opinion. it is. Thank you. It is an incredible scene, and it is at the very least one of the best.
2: An eleven-minute musical number that ends with the studio head being like, eh, "I have to see it in person."
0: Oh yeah, <laughs> it's it's a really good number. It was the movie was nominated for best music in 1953, and Gene Hagen was also nominated for best supporting actress. Uh, again, the Broadway melody is incredible. Gotta Dance. Singing in the Rain, that whole sequence is really good. Um, uh, both singing, or no, it was Good Morning. Good Morning was really good. Mm-hmm. Make Him Laugh is severely underrated.
2: Some of the best choreography in a musical number in Gotta Dance.
0: When he does. When like he runs up the walls. Donald, yeah, that's yeah. that was one of Donald O'Connor's signature moves back when he was performing live and things like that. And at this point, he's a much older man who was smoking several packs of cigarettes a day, and they asked him to do it. And they had to bank up a wall so he could make it up it. Basically what he does is he runs towards a wall, goes up the wall by, like, two steps, and then does a backflip off the wall, which is incredibly difficult, especially because he's landing on concrete. And he said that by the end of that day's shoot, his ankles were entirely bruised. And then they lost the footage and had to reshoot it.
2: <laughs> That's incredible. Commit Very incredible.
0: Also- Gene Kelly was sort of like domineering on the set as a director and as the choreographer. So take that, like, but you will. But it came out really good.
2: Again, Donald O'Connor, going back to what we were talking about Damien Chazelle, the sacrifices you have to <laughs> make to
1: be great. Bruised ankles. <laughs> it all ties together. That's incredible. Yeah. There
0: you go. Anyway, Singing in the Rain is incredible. You should all watch it. It's one of the best musicals ever made of all time. One of the best movies it. ever made. Movies ever mm-hmm. made. You love it, Ryan, yeah?
1: Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Like, re-watching, we watched it in Bob Jones' class. Of course. And I had seen it before a couple of times. but Really? Yeah, but I watching it, it... Oh, really? That was your first time seeing yeah. it? Yeah. Seeing watching it again there, I just developed a much greater appreciation for it.
0: My first experience with that movie is in the great movie ride at the very end when all the cars are lined up and they have the big screen, and it's just gotta dance. And like, they like show the whole scene where he's like screaming, gotta dance. And it's incredible. And I was like, what movie is this from? And I didn't watch it until two years ago. But amazing movie.
1: It's phenomenal. Yeah. Phenomenal. One a of the best of all time. Top three to have been.
0: Very good. Thank good choices. Good they're choices. They're
1: all kind of similar. So I guess I have a type. All very music related. Makes yeah. sense. Yep.
0: You do have a type. But they're, at the very least, they're good movies. That we, we think. So, at the very least... <laughs> I
1: appreciate your validation. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome.
0: All right, that's all the time we have. If you would like to give your thoughts on the show or make a suggestion for the movie of the week, you can email us at show at gmail.com.
1: Our main title theme is Sundown by Joseph McDade. And The Box Office Show is brought to you by WNSC, University of Central Florida, Orlando.
0: Our producer is James Poole, and our script editor is Lillian Snyder. And, of course... Thank you to our guest for today, Benjamin Geller. Ben, thank you so much for coming.
2: (laughs) Thank you for having me.
0: Of course, anytime. You're welcome back anytime you want. We would love to have you and Corey on to talk about micro-budget filmmaking one day. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. See, the secrets
2: of micro-budget filmmaking is win a $350 cruise gift card and then try to sell (laughs) it to recoup your losses. There you go. That's the entire lesson.
0: How much are you selling that for?
2: We're going to find out.
1: All right. Well, (laughs) anyway... Have a great rest of your day. Thank you for tuning in.